to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. This year, my wife Lacey and I celebrate our 17th wedding anniversary in July. There's a lot of love and joy in those 17 years. We've had three kids together, bought a home, sold it, bought another one. And the highlight, we watched the Cubs win the World Series. Many good things, but one thing gets harder the longer you're married. Finding TV shows you both enjoy and can watch together. We have had several that we've both enjoyed over the years. But as you can see with this collection, many of these are old and done. Now, after 16 plus years of watching together, we start shows and they often fall into the category of Lacey likes them, Brad doesn't much, highlighted by reality shows and dramas that take themselves a little too seriously. Or shows that Brad likes and Lacey doesn't so much, including anything fantasy, sci-fi, or otherwise make-believe. So we get stuck with one of us liking and enjoying shows and the other one not. However, there is one sweet spot of television that usually catches us both. The broad genre I will call true crime, crime drama, and murder shows. There is something about the psychology and circumstances that drive people to murder that keeps both of our interests in a way that reality shows and adapted fantasy novels cannot. And quick aside for those of you looking to get married and stay married, There are a lot of important things, shared values, wanting kids or not wanting kids, how you work with sex, figuring out money, but finding things you enjoy doing together is very important, including some overlap on movies and TV shows. Enough marriage counseling though, and back to grisly murder. One aspect I find interesting about the shows on this list, and a big draw of this genre in general, is trying to understand what actually drives an individual to kill another person. In the fictional shows, the motives are very interesting. Um, Some combination of lust and control in Law and Order SVU, obsession and control in you, and my favorite, Dexter, who satisfies his unhealthy impulses as a serial killer with justice killings. But as I mentioned, these aren't real and are purposely on the more interesting side. The documentary type ones um, or real true crime are often different. The show that was up there, I Am a Killer, is essentially murderers themselves that are on death row telling their stories. It's not pure objective truth because it's through their filter, which is also interesting, Um, but these stories all feature a lot of abuse and trauma in their lives, which I think I knew intellectually was probably the case, but hearing each of them tell about their past makes it so much more real. Now, I think this trauma is what kind of makes a person capable of murder though. The motive itself in their stories range from robberies gone wrong, defense against sexual assault, which if true was a wrongful conviction, um, immediate reaction to abuse, and all the way to purposely killing a cellmate while in prison to get a move to a better facility on death row. That guy was no kidding crazy. And I think he is what I unfairly uh, assume about all convicted murderers. Now, based on watching this and then on reading a few articles, the most common motives for murder boil down to jealousy, revenge, and money. Not an exhaustive list, um, but a pretty good one. And in this show, which again interviews people who are on death row, 
Um, and as I judge these people as deeply scarred by trauma or real psychopaths, I'm reminded that Jesus spent some time on the Roman Empire version of death row. Uh, but since he didn't actually kill anyone, it's a more apt analogy to look at Jesus as a victim of murder instead of a perpetrator. And now that we've kind of talked through a general list of reasons why people commit murder, let's turn back to the series we started with last week that leads up to Jesus' death. We're looking at the four Passovers in Jesus' life that we see in the Gospel accounts, culminating with one that precedes his death on Good Friday and resurrection on Easter. One of the overarching questions um, that I've had much of my life about these events is why did the religious leaders at the time kill Jesus? I mean, as we read through the Bible, so many stories stick out of Jesus teaching to love your neighbor, to turn the other cheek, to love your enemies. There are stories of him healing the sick, forgiving people's sins, feeding the 5,000, casting out demons. These are the things that stick out to me, such that this man eventually being killed seems illogical and like it doesn't fit the story. He seems like a man of peace, forgiveness, and restoration. So what in the world could be the motive for the conspiracy that brought about his death? Well, today we are looking at a different sort of story in Jesus' life, one where we see him at his most threatening and most violent. We are looking at the time, and really two times, when Jesus clears the temple in anger. Now, we see a lot of examples um, of God's anger and wrath in the Old Testament, um, such that people often think of the Old Testament God as wrathful, um, and then the New Testament is different with Jesus there. Um, but with our understanding of the Trinity, there really is not a difference in the character and nature of Jesus versus of God the Father that we read about in the Old Testament. Um, we could spend a lot of time unpacking how those different expressions work, but just um, for our purposes here, um, it, it really means that that expression we see in the Old Testament has some of it in Jesus as well, because that, that, it's the same God and the same Trinity. Um, and in the New Testament, this story, again, stands out because it's the time when Jesus' anger is on display, which we don't see as much. It is a unique place to see and understand what makes God angry. And understanding this first um, can help us avoid making him angry ourselves, which is a good thing. Kind of like seeing your older sibling get in trouble um, can be a warning as to what sets your parents off. Secondly, we can see an example of actual righteous anger uh, modeled by Jesus. It's a very fashionable thing right now to be outraged about any number of things. People see this as showing their passion and commitment um, to justice or to causes, which can be very good. However, I don't think we're getting this right as a society or as Christians. Uh, for a quick example and some foreshadowing, we see Jesus do this one to two times in his three years of ministry, at least when it comes to physical reaction. Um, this is a far cry from a daily, weekly, or even monthly angry rant on social media. All right, without further introduction, let's get to the main passage we're covering today. Um, to set the stage a little bit, this is the time of the Jewish Passover celebration, also known as the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Jesus and his disciples, as observant Jews, had traveled to Jerusalem to the temple. It would have been very crowded because, because uh, everyone in Judah and any of the Jewish people who had moved to foreign countries were supposed to come to celebrate at the temple and make sacrifices all at once. 
Jesus comes into the temple courtyard, fresh off turning water into wine and kicking off his official ministry. And we pick up the narrative from the Gospel of John. It says, It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. So here we see Jesus make a whip from some ropes, turn over tables, chasing sheep, cattle, and the people selling them all out of the temple. And he gives us our first clue as to what makes him so angry. A very strong clue when he says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So the short answer to why Jesus is so angry here is that when he entered the temple area, there were a bunch of people there selling animals for sacrifices and exchanging currency such that it looked more like a marketplace than a temple. But let's unpack this a little bit more. What's going on in this marketplace? Now, in general, these transactions um, are people selling the types of animals needed for the sacrifices at the temple, especially during Passover. And having these sacrifices isn't exactly optional. Uh, In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God gave his people one set of instructions for the ceremony um, that we see being celebrated in our story. It reads, each year you must celebrate three festivals in my honor. First, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast, just as I commanded you. Celebrate this festival annually at the appointed time in early spring in the month of Abib. For that is the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. No one may appear before me without an offering. Now, based on this direction, um, all of the people would be heading to the temple at the same time to celebrate Passover, and they would all need an offering to appear before the Lord. The most kind way to say what is going on in the temple is that they are making available for purchase the things that the crowds need. They need animals for the sacrifices, and they need to be able to exchange their money, uh, their currency, for the right money to buy these animals for sacrifice. Um, And these things all being available at the temple is sort of a one-stop shop. As a business move, having these goods available right at the center of the demand is very smart. This is a tried and true strategy. Anyone who has been to a sporting event or an amusement park and needed to buy food knows the strategy and what often comes with this concentrated demand. Prices are about double what you would pay outside of the event space. $6 for a bottle of water when a 32-pack at the store is something like 4 to $5. Um, not very good chicken strips at an amusement park run about $15, and there are no kids' meals. So when my kids leave one of their three chicken strips, I can easily calculate how much money is being thrown into the trash. But we often pay these prices, even someone as financially grumpy as me, <laughs> because it's so much more convenient to buy food there um, than it is to plan ahead and to bring it in, even though it's way more expensive. Now, I don't know that the animals being sold in the temple were overpriced, but when I read what Jesus says the other time he clears the temple, um, which is another time that he comes to Jerusalem for the Passover, 
I think it clearly points in that direction. There is a version um, of this in each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to read the one from Luke. It says, Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, this this sounds like the same account, but this is a separate time that Jesus clears the temple. He does it twice. Um, But it sure seems like the same thing and that his reasoning would be the same. Um, Jesus saying they have turned the temple into a den of thieves implies that the people are being ripped off by the merchants. Uh, Again, if you look at this solely as a business opportunity, you should charge high prices. You have a captive audience with built-in demand for your product. Um, But I think this is the first reason Jesus is so angry. Regular people who are doing the right thing are being taken advantage of. And taking it one step further, the built-in demand here is not just that they really need a lamb or a dove. It's that they really need a lamb or a dove to come before God. And the people who run the temple, God's house, are charging them high, unfair prices for access to God. Jesus is not upset about the market for lambs. Any anger here is about profiting off of a monopoly on access to God and what is required for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of sins according to the law of Moses. So if you're keeping score, uh, that's one reason Jesus is angry, or really two. Um, we've got the injustice that people are being taken advantage of and that the merchants are selling access to God and are selling forgiveness for sins. I think there's one last and probably biggest reason that Jesus is so angry here, and it's pretty apparent in his words in both passages. First in John, he said, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then in Luke, he said, the scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. In both places, he is outraged that a place that is meant to be where people come and meet God, to pray, to be near his presence, and to worship has been fundamentally changed. When Jesus enters the temple on both of these occasions, and I suspect on a lot of the days where Jesus doesn't enter the temple, which is most days, um, and he's not there to clear it, the place has the feel of a bustling marketplace where commerce and business are the focus instead of the focus being on God. Now, at this time, the temple is the literal house of God. The innermost part of the temple, called the Holy of Holies, houses God's presence. And the expanding sections around the Holy of Holies are places that people can come to be near God's presence and come to talk to him, come to seek um, God in prayer, sacrifice, and to repent of their sins. With the merchants and money changers, the experience has become about haggling, getting a good deal, protecting your purse from pickpockets, waiting in lines, and the general sense of hurry and stress that naturally pair with the marketplace. The very nature and identity of this place has changed. All right, so now we have a pretty good idea of why Jesus was so angry. To recap, the reasons are, first, the injustice that people are being taken advantage of. Second, people selling access to God and forgiveness of sins. And third, that these sellers have changed the nature and focus of the temple from a place of prayer to a place of commerce. Now, the other question that this this story brings up is, uh, is it actually okay to just violently clear out all the money changers and merchants? Um, Getting back to our analogy of an amusement park food court, if I attempted to clear out all the overpriced food vendors, um, 
security would be called immediately and I would be arrested. So what happened to Jesus after this? Well, let's read. First from our main text in John, we'll pick up at the end of the previous section we read. It says, then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. This is a very um, interesting reaction from the temple leaders. It's negative for sure, um, but the Jewish leaders are essentially questioning whether Jesus has the authority to clear the temple of merchants instead of a blanket statement that no one can do this. It's not like the amusement cart or park food court where that would be completely against the law. Um, it's as if there is some awareness that they may have gone too far with the marketplace and the temple. And while they're not happy to have it pointed out so publicly, it's a question of Jesus as a possible authority instead of a pure defense of their actions. When they ask for a miraculous sign, they're essentially saying, prove to us that your authority comes from God if you're going to do this. Or show us that you're a prophet, a person specifically sent um, to speak words for God. And Jesus gives what uh, seems to be an intentionally cryptic response that foretells his own death and resurrection, but also identifies himself as the temple, the embodiment of God on earth. Interestingly, the verse right after all of this says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. So while Jesus doesn't give a miraculous sign on the spot to the Jewish leaders, um, to get himself out of trouble. It sounds like he did do miraculous signs in the hours and days immediately after this, adding credibility to his actions of clearing the temple and to his ministry and popularity with the people. Now, remember, this first scene um, and the reaction we've just looked at is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And while I'm sure this didn't make a positive impression on the Jewish leaders, they didn't have a strong prior um, knowledge or opposition to Jesus. When we read about the reaction to the second time he clears the temple, this is different. It's in the third year of his ministry. He's already butted heads with these leaders before, um, and we see something significantly different. This is the same passage we read earlier in Luke, but extended a verse or two to see the reactions. It says, Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. After that, he taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word he said. So now later in his ministry, the priests and leaders are plotting how to kill him after he clears the temple. And we see the contrasting reaction that the common people hang on his every word. Similarly, it appears that there is not an immediate consequence for Jesus' actions. He is not immediately arrested. Um, but we do see, based on the text, that this is a contributor uh, to their motives to kill him. And circling back to where we started with the various motives for murder, 
Um, what is it about this scene that makes Jesus a target or that elevates him to the point of a threat that needs to be eliminated? Well, of the motives that we said, uh, there are two of them that make sense. One is jealousy. Uh, we see right in the text that Jesus is gaining popularity with the people. Um, he's teaching in the temple and gaining more followers. And the people listed here who are planning to kill him are the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the leaders of the people. So Jesus gaining this influence as a teacher and a leader um, would be supplanting these other people. He would be taking away some of their influence um, and creating jealousy. The second one that makes sense, especially in this story, is the motive of money. Jesus clearing out the marketplace certainly had spiritual implications, but it also changed things financially, which would have upset the people who were making all of the money from the situation. If the merchants and money changers in the temple were doing as business says they should and overcharging similarly to an amusement park, uh, the people who control access to the temple stand to be one, one of the parties who profits. The most likely setup would be that they control which merchants have access to this prime location through something like a lease agreement or, or a bribe. And the leading priests and temple officials would be the ones who probably profit the most. So we have a group of people who are losing influence with the people, creating jealousy, and who are taking a financial loss as a result of Jesus' actions. And then you throw in some religious justification wrapped around accusations of blasphemy, which we don't see in this story, but was certainly a factor if you read the, the Gospels as a whole. And you get a coalition of powerful people who all want this rabbi from Galilee dead. And to recap, or really to organize what we just went over, the reasons the priests, teachers of religious law, and leaders wanted Jesus dead from this passage are first, jealousy, that he was increasing in influence with the people while they were decreasing, and second, greed. His clearing the temple of merchants disrupted their business arrangements and took money out of their pockets. As we can see, um, the scene where Jesus is at his most outraged and violent was a big contributor in the lead up to his crucifixion. Having unpacked this passage, I now want to circle back to one of the core questions um, this morning. What can we learn from this example of Jesus' righteous anger? First, let's start with the object of Jesus' anger so we can make sure that we aren't doing the same things. Um, I'm going to go back to the list we made earlier of what drove Jesus to be angry at this time. First was the injustice. Second was merchants selling access to God and to forgiveness of sins. And third was having the sellers having changed the nature and focus of the temple from being a focus on God to a focus on commerce. I'll talk about the first two together. And I, I think we're actually doing fine on these, but I think there's a pretty clear connection here um, for some problematic practices in church history. Um, and I'm kind of talking about this as a, as a group, you know, kind of the temple being similar to a church gathering. Um, but if you, if you look back in church history, uh, one that comes to mind, especially for selling forgiveness to sins and access to God was indulgences. So this was a practice back before the Protestant Reformation uh, where the church was essentially sold forgiveness to sins, even for people who had already died. Um, I, I don't believe this happens now, um, at least in the same way, but it's not a far cry from some of the things that are um, promised by current time televangelists. Uh, kind of a give money to me and you will be blessed or you will have favor with God or your sins will be forgiven um, is a rough summary of some of those messages. 
Now, the Bible does make a promise around tithing, but it is not required for the forgiveness of sins or to talk to God. Um, as we've said when we walk through the passage, selling access to God or selling forgiveness of sins is not something anyone on earth can do or has the right to do. Those are things that are for God to give, and he gives them freely to all of us and to those who ask them. Now, the third item on the list is interesting when applied to our gatherings. Um, worship gatherings like this one uh, that, that we're doing now are a sort of equivalent to the temple. Um, and then the question that, that arises from this is, are our gatherings clearly focused as a time to meet God? Is the focus on him or is it on our agendas? As we write messages, um, prepare for and lead worship, do creative planning each week, um, are we thinking of this with creating a, a, an event around God being the focus? Um, I don't think we have anything near a marketplace here at DR. I guess we have DR store where you can buy books related to our series for $5. Um, my guess is a lot of people didn't even know that was a thing. So it probably hasn't um, risen to the point of overtaking and becoming the primary focus of our gatherings. Um, but I think this is overall an important point for everyone involved in planning our services, our series, um, and putting together these worship gatherings. Is meeting God and worshiping him at the heart of what we're doing? In general, I think the answer is yes, by the way. I'm not saying I think that we're way off track, um, but this is certainly a thing that's worth checking in on. And then similarly, on a personal level, when we come to church, are we coming to meet God? Are we coming to worship him as a community and grow together? Um, or are we coming to appear good and righteous to other people or even to feel good about ourselves for having done something that's externally good or virtuous? All right, one last application section and then we'll finish up. Um, I mentioned earlier on, or early on, that this is one of the big examples of Jesus displaying righteous and semi-violent anger in the Gospels. Um, so how and when is it um, appropriate for us to do likewise? And I'm going to give a somewhat incomplete answer here because I do think it's reasonable to assume there are times when this behavior is appropriate. However, I think it's very rarely uh, the response. Now, if you're defending the defenseless, like actually in a situation where someone is attacking someone who can't defend themselves, that may be a good reason. Um, if you are standing up against clear evil, and I'm thinking of things like human trafficking, exploiting the poor, child abuse, violence against women, then you're on the right track at least. However, there is way more in the Bible saying to help people in need, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to help the widow and the refugee than there is about bringing violence to their oppressors. Now, I enjoy this taken series of films as much as the next guy. I think Batman is awesome. The new movie that just came out was very good. Um, being a violent vigilante appeals to every ounce of testosterone in my body. And as I said earlier, I'm probably too on board with the semi-righteous serial killer depicted in the show Dexter. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing when he clears the temple. If you were looking to make change in the world, I would do it like Martin Luther King Jr., not like the guy who assassinated him. Or like Gandhi, not like the guy who assassinated him. Or obviously make change like Jesus did not like the coalition of people who plotted and carried out his execution. Remember, this scene we saw was not a common occurrence for Jesus. He didn't go to every town that he visited and turn over tables and create rips, whips from ropes. He went to every town and preached the good news about the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He cast out demons and gave comfort to the oppressed. 
deciding that you need to display righteous and especially violent anger most of the time is not in line with the majority of Jesus' ministry. Now, all that being said, if there is a cause or an issue that you feel righteously angry about, that could be good. And I don't want to discourage that passion and motivation. Um, The world has been changed for the better many times by people who see injustice in the world and will not stand for it. If this is you, then do it and make a difference. I would look further than arguing on social media for sure, and I encourage avoiding violence, but our righteous anger can often point us to God-given purpose and passion, which is a very powerful thing. Now, if you're less clear on a cause or don't don't have like an example of righteous anger, that's fine too. Um, Here are a few things that I recommend. Uh, One of them is um, give to a cause that fights injustice. A lot of times this is kind of funding um, someone else's passion for the justice in the world and their righteous anger that they feel. Um, For me, International Justice Mission is my favorite um, in this line. They fight to free slaves, to bring women and children out of forced prostitution. Uh, And in my opinion, they are standing against some of the worst forces in the world. Uh, This is this is actually a um, an organization that our church gives money to as well. Uh, A second one is to go on a trip to a place where there is real suffering and real poverty. A missions trip will often work. Uh, They're costly, of course, but this is also often possible much closer to home than you think, or even through just seeking out um, the right type of media to see what's really going on in the world. Um, Locally, there are certainly people living in poverty in and near Tucson, um, because sometimes we aren't angry about the injustice in the world because we simply don't see it. Um, doing this is not comfortable, but I think it is good for our souls to see how other people live. It is hard to defend the defenseless when we've never seen them and don't know that they exist. All right, to close things out and to get us ready for communion, I want to point out that a big part of what Jesus was angry about here, what drove him to clear the temple twice, uh, was the temple leaders restricting access to God. Then when he died and rose again, uh, we became able to access to experience God's presence anywhere. I think we'll hear more about this in upcoming weeks um, when the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom as Jesus is, is killed. What that signified is that we no longer need to travel to the temple in Jerusalem. Um, we can talk to God in our homes while we work or in our cars or really anywhere. Jesus said the temple was meant to be a house of prayer we can make any room or any place in our lives a house of prayer, thanks to him. The sacrifice that was required for the people coming to to celebrate Passover was paid by Jesus, and now we can talk to God anywhere. May we remember what he did for us, what it means to be free to talk to God anytime, and may we choose to be a people of prayer in the same way that the temple was meant to be a house of prayer in Jesus' time. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you um, that we can just pray to you like this, that we um, don't need to go to a temple. Um, I thank you for your son, for the example of righteous anger um, that we have, and and just for the life and the example that he lived um, that makes it clear for us and helps us know you more and more. We love you, God. Pray these things in your holy name. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.org.
www.thepowerbrokers.com.